0: Hello and welcome to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast.
1: I'm James. And I'm Nick. And together we'd like to invite you to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge.
0: Just like you, we have questions about the world.
1: Deceptively simple questions. So one series at a time, just as fast as our little brains will allow, we'll bring together the best and the brightest to talk about these simple questions.
0: In this first series, we're talking about climate change
1: climate change is likely to affect almost every area of our lives like a toddler with sticky fingers.
0: So in this first episode we'll explore how and why climate change has become this difficult to wrangle sticky fingered toddler.
1: So this is our first podcast recording. We probably sounded a little bit nervous. Probably. <laughs> I <think laughs> well, okay. I think it's we, definitely. <laughs> we, we did sound a little bit nervous.
0: But I think we did get not only the questions we wanted, but also the answers that, you know, people would probably want to hear and probably want to know about. So I think we did do a good job. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to get started.
1: I am. I cannot wait to hear back this episode. It was fun to record and it should hopefully be fun to listen to. So Nick, who were we talking to? in today's episode.
0: We talked to a professor of human geography. Hello, I'm Mike Hume.
1: A science historian and journalist.
2: Hi, my name's Sarah
0: Dry. And an environmental economist.
1: Hello, my
0: name's Matthew
2: Agrawala.
1: We began by
3: asking...
0: In this sort of mosaic sort of sphere of climate change, where does your research fit in?
3: Oh, I would say right in the middle. Uh, everyone else revolves around my research.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Well, it, I mean, the, the reason I would say that is, 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 in a sense, I've studied the idea of climate change from, from, I mean, not every single dimension, but from many different dimensions. So whether it's data or models or scenarios or policy or adaptation uh, or, or, or culture or discourse uh, or literature, I, I, I've sort of dabbled in, in all of those things.
0: And Matthew?
3: Well, I mean, economists naturally
4: consider themselves the centre of the universe, but I think <laughs> actually the... the um, the, the question you asked about where does our research fit in the mosaic is, is quite telling. The way I like to explain it is that economics is a piece of the puzzle for every important policy question, including those around climate change. Uh, and so that's the piece of this puzzle where I focus and my research focuses.
0: It's great to hear the interconnectivity coming through already. And finally, Sarah. Um, well, my
2: my approach is historical in the sense that I'm interested in how people have understood climate in the past, but I'm also really interested in communication and how history and different kinds of history writing can be a tool for reaching people and telling stories that make them feel more connected to climate change today.
1: I want to start with a question um, which sort of takes us back in time a little bit, and I want to figure out how we sort of ended up here, how we got to where we are now. We were talking about human-made climate change. So if we want to think about human because anthropogenic climate change, what would the starting point be for that?
3: So scientists have been thinking about changing climate, well, certainly for the last 300 years. And if you want, you can push it back to Roman or Greek philosophers. Um, but humans, as sentient beings living in the weather actually have experienced climate change in their own terms ever since humans evolved 200, 300,000 years ago. And certainly over the last 50,000 years as we've developed uh, ways of inscribing our experience of physical environments into artifacts. So I would push it back 50,000 years. Humans have been experiencing climate change and trying to make sense of the changes in their weather for all of that period of time scientists are very latecomers on the scene.
1: Sarah, would you would you agree what what does this look like from your perspective?
2: Well, I love what Mike is saying. I mean, as a historian I'm I'm I you know, he's bringing in deep time and he's he's sort of pushing back on the kinds of assumptions that are embedded in in your question, I think. And that's what's great about having Mike on the scene. I suppose expand I guess on those assumptions. Um, part of the debate around this term, the Anthropocene, which we might as well get out there sooner rather than later, um, is you know this idea that, that we're in, entering a new geological epoch, which is defined by the impact of humans on the planet, and which human beings can no longer be separated from it. it. Has involved a lot of discussion over you know when does it start? You know you could choose 1610, for example. Some have suggested as the moment of the Columbian Exchange, when European explorers go to the New World and Cause a massive um, die-off of the native peoples, and there's wide, widespread reforestation as a result. Um, People talk about 1784 when James Watt invents, uh, patents the double-acting steam engine, and this kind of launches, you know, fossil, fossil fuel use on a large scale. You could potentially look at, say, the post-war, post-World War II era, 1945, and the so-called Great Acceleration when we get, you know, massive increase in population, and again, fossil fuel combustion. So, I mean, I think the point is is not that there is a, a single
3: moment. And, and, and follow, just following Sarah's line uh, right, right up to the present day, I mean, other people would argue climate change in, in a very narrowly prescribed sense started with Jim Hansen in 1988 when he testified to the U.S. Senate and put climate change firmly on the American policy map or later in that summer when Margaret Thatcher gave a speech here in the U.K. and it became a, a big public policy issue in the U.K., um, or, or some people uh, uh, would maybe push it even further back than that and say it was, you know, the emergence of uh, Bill McGibbon and his 350.org uh, global social movements that really catalysed public engagement with the idea of climate change. So there are many different starting points that we could uh, we could propose,
2: and they all have a politics to them. I think is the point to make that when we when we want to talk about the, for example, the discovery of climate change, it's implying a kind of unity, a, a singular meaning to that term. And I think that's what Mike is so sort of good at pointing out, that it means so many different things to so many different people.
4: I think I would be remiss if we had a conversation about start of uh, climate change and we didn't at least acknowledge the role of Eunice Foot who was the, I suppose, scientist or or, uh, suffragette in the 1850s in the United States, who was the first to actually demonstrate the greenhouse effect in a scientific experiment. And then in her conclusions drew up that if we changed the ratio of gases, particularly around CO2 in the atmosphere, this would change the climate for the planet. That's when we first started to know about our impacts on it at a global scale.
2: Well, I don't know if it's quite fair to say that in the 1850s, people really imagined that human beings could influence the climate at at that level, to be fair. Um, But they were making important discoveries about the relationship between the gases in the atmosphere and and incoming solar radiation. You know, we now retrospectively look back and, and connect with what we know of rising fossil fuel use over time.
3: Or well, put it differently, my grandfather, William, was born in 1893 and he died in 1977. He lived most of his life in Liverpool uh, as a, a white collar worker working in office. He had no experience, though he lived through that period from 1893 to 1977. He had no understanding at all that humans were altering the climate on planetary scales through their industrial and energy practices. H- whole, whole generations of, of, of humans have lived over the last 200 years without any knowledge of that human impact on the global climate
2: and many people still somehow manage to uh, preserve that sense of ignorance today
1: okay i think it's time for a footnote a UNIS footnote perhaps am i right
0: <laughs> yeah exactly there were heaps of names buzzwords terminology lots of things thrown out there as some potential starting points
1: We wanted to start both the series and the episode by looking at the roots and sources of climate change to try and give us an understanding of the issue, both from a scientific and cultural perspective.
0: We heard the name Eunice Foote.
1: Yes, uh, in the 1850s, Eunice Foote, an amateur scientist and activist for women's rights, made a remarkable discovery about greenhouse gases that could have helped form the foundation of modern climate science skip forward about a century, and there was Jim Hansen, a NASA scientist who in 1988 told a US congressional hearing that he could declare with 99% confidence that a recent sharp rise in temperatures was a result of human activity.
0: Turns out that 1988 was a big year, not only for shoulder pads, but for climate change, as Bill McGibbon, the American environmentalist, author, journalist and activist, was also mentioned.
1: Yes, in 1988, he wrote The End of Nature, the first book for a lay audience about global warming.
0: Now, the Anthropocene.
1: How could we forget the Anthropocene? It's basically a term to describe the period in geological history when humans started having a major impact on the environment.
0: Time to start this train of thought up again. We've sort of just been talking about the sort of history of climate change and climate change science, but... As an economist, you might be sort of more future focused. How does our global future rely on our sort of past slash present?
4: I mean, climate change is the kind of problem that cannot be measured or dealt with at a single point in time. So we can't just take a slice at a point in time and say, this is what climate and economics look like. We have to look at how they co-evolve dynamically over time. And so what might the future be uh, for an economy uh, and for our climate system? It's a difficult question. Economists can sometimes get themselves into trouble here. They could, we can produce models and computer uh, packages that will estimate, for instance, the impact of climate change or warming temperatures, changing precipitation on the size of the global economy. And we can run these models for a hundred years into the future. And we can claim that this tells us something about what the the world will look like uh, that far into the future. But I think it's a dangerous exercise. There's a wonderful economist by the name of Thomas Schelling, who back in 1992 wrote a paper on the economics of global warming. And in it, he proposed a thought experiment, which was to imagine that we knew with perfect certainty the change in temperature and precipitation over every square meter of the planet For an entire century. Pretend we knew that. And all that was left for economists was to figure out what would be the economic impact of that temperature and precipitation change. And then he said, imagine you're doing this, you're the economist that has to predict this, but you're doing it in the year 1900 for the year 2000. Well, what would you think about? You would be concerned about the impact of, say, precipitation changes on transport and shipping, because the horses and the carts can't go as fast on the muddy roads uh, if there's if there's floods. You might be concerned about the impact on health, uh, but you would be trying to project this into a world that doesn't have even widespread hand washing, let alone vaccinations and antibiotics. And so the point that he's making is that 100 years into the future, when we try to run these climate models, lots and lots of things are going to change. and Some of these might have even bigger impacts than the climate system would have on the way that the world looks. But that doesn't mean we can't say anything about the future. It just means it's very hard. What we do know uh, is that an increase in fires and floods and climate volatility uh, in the potential of uh, refugees from climate change, these could have severe impacts on the economy. And the costs of preventing it are generally much lower than the potential impacts of suffering a climate catastrophe.
2: Can I jump in and just piggytail on something that, that Matthew just um, raised, which is, which is that, you know, knowledge is, is never enough. Um, it will never get us to where we need to be. And um, the delaying tactics associated with saying that we don't have enough knowledge to know how to act um, have been pretty well um, revealed, not just in relation to climate change, but we've, we've learned about how they were used by, you know, the tobacco industry, we, we know a lot about sowing uncertainty and sowing doubt. That's the negative side of it. The sort of positive side, if you will, is, well, if we just know a bit more, we can do a, an even better job. But I think what Matthew is pointing towards is that, um, you know, the future is essentially unknowable, and um, as is as is the present in the kind of detail that we might want. But that what really matters are the values that we bring to these questions of how know what kind of society we want to live in what kind of world we want to live in do we have the the collective and political will to make changes that will that will be a benefit to to many people um, not just to some people in a position of power so i i think this focus on the future in a way is tied up with this sense of um a a kind of retreat to science in a way that we that we I recognize that that can be maybe a provocative thing to say in this moment of, you know, real threat to the authority of science. And don't get me wrong, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of science. But I think we don't do it any favors. We don't do scientists or the scientific community or the status of science favors by expecting us to tell us things that it really can't. You know, climate change is is what we might call a wicked problem or a trans scientific problem. you know and and i would i guess i would include economics in there as a as the as a science dismal or not
3: <laughs> well that no that's that's exactly i mean that's exactly both matthew and sarah have been able to to actually put their finger on exactly part of the tragedy if we call it that of the politics of climate change over the last 30 or 40 years is that climate change has got caught up in between these two extremes on the one hand denying that we know anything at all or or even that Science can point to human influence on the climate system, on the one hand, and on the other hand, is the overpromise, the continual promise from science that just a little bit more, one big more push, a new model, uh, another ten billion dollars, and we will have the knowledge that will allow us to design our future in ways that safeguard us against this changing climate. And climate politics has been caught up between those two poles, um, oscillating from one to the other and arguing. Uh, between one and the other. Whereas actually at the, at the heart of the problem, as Sarah says, is a, a question of human values, uh, how different people uh, envision their future. Uh, and that comes out of their political instincts and their moral reasoning, their religious sensibilities, their sense of what a good life, a good human life, and a shared good human life is with other sentient creatures on the planet. And those are things that science... Will never, even with the most powerful model in the world, science will not cut its way through those contested values and, and those differing politics.
2: I would love to hear, Matthew, what you think about, about this concept of value, right? As an economist, um, the extent to which we can capture um, meaningful values using economics.
4: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that we grapple with in environmental economics all the time. One of the things that I like doing with my my first-year students, actually, is uh, the first day of class, they'll take out a little scrap of paper and they'll write down very quickly the three the three most valuable things they can think of. And they've got five seconds to do this, and then they've just got to blurt them out. And we would get things like diamonds and rare earth metals and Wi-Fi and, and, and these sorts of things. And then I ask them a slightly different question, which is, all right, tell me the three things that you think you value the most. And then we get things like family and relationships, uh, faith, uh, etc. And so this this word value can be used to reflect two completely different concepts. One is a value in an economic sense for trade and exchange, and the other is a value in terms of the moral or ethical sense. Uh, And the economics of climate change, and indeed, the economics of the entire environment struggles with the interaction between these. Yeah. They're related. So whether we place economic weight onto the future generations, that entails both an economic valuation in terms of dollars and cents of you know, the impact that we might have on them, but it also requires an ethical or moral or cultural or social judgment on whether our values, whether our moral values are to consider the future is important. And so we have this importance and we have this economic value. Of course, one thing that that, that we should remember is economics is a piece of the puzzle to every policy question. And so one way of looking at the relationship between the environment and the economy is to understand that the environment provides economic goods and services into the economy. But that's not the only way to look at the environment. And it's not to reduce the environment to some commodity. It's just that as economists, we have an obligation to look at the world through a lens that recognizes that all of our welfare, all of our production—the goods and services, the food that we eat, the clothes we wear, the buildings in which we live—depend on a stable climate system.
2: Do you think that you can use this tool of valuing natural resources as, as a way to kind of weight the impact on later generations or the value of of um, the environment today, without, in some ways, diminishing the validity or the prominence of this other more um, ethical or emotional set of values?
4: I think we can and I think we must understand the relationships between the economy and the environment. The problem is that our economies and our economic statistics haven't done this over the past century. So if we look at the past hundred years, we see in the economic statistics a story of growth, Uh, And improvement. We see it in life expectancy, in incomes, in GDP, in output, in trade relationships, in the sharing of people and ideas and culture and cuisine uh, across borders. We see uh, increased access to medical care. We see education for women and girls. All of these things are tremendous improvements in the human condition and they're undeniable. And they come alongside unprecedented economic growth. The problem, and that entire story is told in our economic statistics. The problem is that this growth has brought about a parallel story, which is not reflected in our economic statistics. And that is the story of one and a half trillion tons of CO2 being released into the atmosphere. It's the story of uh, 68% of vertebrate species uh, seeing substantial loss in their population numbers over the past 50 years. It's the story of desertification and the destruction of uh, pristine ecosystems. Uh, And it's the story of uh, reduced air quality with a huge impact on human health. And this is not reflected appropriately in our economic statistics. And those are real costs. And these mounting environmental pressures have the possibility, they threaten to undermine the entire century's worth of gains we've seen in all these other domains.
0: I don't know about you, but I think it's time for a quick recap
1: yeah they basically did our job for us in that last part
0: but the conversation went in some really interesting directions like we heard from matthew about how difficult it is to use models to predict the future
1: exactly and sarah told us that knowledge isn't enough anyway it doesn't always prompt us to take any action
0: and then mike called this the tragedy of climate change
1: i mean that sounds kind of sad right
0: it does i think he was just saying that climate change is caught up in limbo between denial and optimism, and also scientific evidence and values.
1: Yes, both are needed, but maybe we put too much focus on evidence and not enough on human values.
0: And then we got into the different meanings of values, economic versus moral, and how environmental action is also caught between these two forces.
1: So we can predict the future, but only with imperfect scientific models.
0: And in order to take action, we need to do this with values in mind. Basically, what do we really want our future to look like?
1: And how do we effectively get people to connect those two things? The evidence of what the future could look like and what we want the future to look like in order to take action.
0: Simple, right? Well, we asked Mike.
1: Around this question, so we're talking about all the different ways that we can think about climate change or frame climate change. For example, you know, through the lens of particular values or through an economic lens. And I'm interested in practically how we can frame the issue as a whole, such that it's more likely we can work towards possible solutions. So maybe Mike, I'll start you off here. What can we do practically to try and frame, think about, talk about climate change, which leads to a more productive outcome?
3: You can't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) My argument is exactly this, you can't. There was a paper written a few years ago by a group of people at King's College London where I used to work, uh, some Bushell and colleagues, and they argued, from a fact, from an interesting perspective, from a defense and strategic studies perspective, how climate change needed to establish a single strategic narrative that the world could unite behind. And they proposed a number of different ways in which one might go about trying to construct a st- single strategic narrative uh, for the world. Uh, now, now uh, to my mind, that's completely misunderstanding the nature of human society and the political life that follows from human socialization. The idea that that one can get 8 billion people united behind a single strategic narrative, uh, to me is embarking on a false journey. What climate change has done, in the way I read it, is Uh, It offers a new set of windows, perspectives, stories, questions, risks, dangers, hopes, visions, aspirations, all of the things actually that constitute the rough and tumble of human political life. And and, and to think somehow that one can put all of those things back into a single box and define this is the problem of climate change uh, uh, undermines the human diversity, cultural diversity, uh, moral, ethical diversity of uh, human life on the planet. So so the best we can do is to recognize that there are different stories around climate change that come from different starting points and to give them space, visibility in political life and allow politics to work with those in order to negotiate its way incrementally by no means in a linear way uh, towards finding certain types of policy interventions so there will be policy interventions that may tackle particular aspects of climate change that gain ascendancy at particular moments but they will not be decisive policy interventions that somehow will eradicate climate change from the planet and that's why sarah used the term earlier on climate change for many is seen as a wicked problem it is a problem that defies a, a, a single uh, a solution uh, and even less a single strategic narrative.
2: Maybe this is another way of answering the question or expanding on what Mike has said so well, which is that we're, we're doomed if we look for, for a single answer or a single story. But one way forward might be to lo- to start looking at many stories and to start giving people tools uh, to connect their own lives and their own Kind of emotional uh, geography, I suppose, to what can be a very forbidding and remote, um, you know, language of climate change. How do we how do we connect our local experiences and our our personal lives, the things we really care about, our emotional lives, to something that's that's been, I think, unfortunately presented to us as a set of facts um, that that make it hard for us to to feel a direct link. And and while that may seem, um, I don't know, you know, frustratingly granular, how are we ever going to make progress if we have to start at the individual level? I guess I'd say, how else are we going to make progress?
4: So one of the themes that we've been exploring in our, our work at the Wealth Economy Project uh, here at Cambridge is how do we tell these stories at big scales, the national scale, at the global scale? And for economists, The tools that we use to tell stories over time, they're accounts. Everybody has an account. They have their own bank account. Companies have accounts. Countries have national accounts. The problem is that when we use these accounting tools, we've been excluding nature as part of the economy. So the way I like to think about it is, imagine you're running a bakery. The size of the pie that you can produce in the future, that's your GDP, it depends on the stock of ingredients that you've got in your pantry. And if you're running out of milk and eggs and butter, then tomorrow's pie is definitely going to be smaller. Now, as economists, we're talking not about just milk and eggs and butter. We're talking about the full suite of ingredients in the economic recipe. This is our human skills and health. It's our physical infrastructure. It's our social relationships, the quality of our legal institutions. And it's the quality of our environment. And these are the ingredients. And if we run our stocks of these ingredients down, tomorrow's pie shrinks. And so we've been developing accounts to look at the environmental ingredient in the economic recipe book. And we can degrade our environmental ingredients, for instance, by releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And this brings us to the thing that Mike was talking about, about the global dimensions. We know that greenhouse gas emissions reduce our environmental wealth. They destroy our climate. But whose climate do they destroy? Whose assets are being undermined? And what trade does, international trade does, is it draws us further apart in terms of the impacts of production and consumption and the benefits of production and consumption. So that you can extract fossil fuels in the Middle East, burn them in China to produce goods that are consumed in the UK. We get the benefits here in the UK and the consequences of the climate change might accrue in a completely different country that's not included in the production chain at all.
3: So I think that, that's that's an interesting perspective, Matthew, quite very helpful as well, because it also draws attention to to one other of the dimensions that, that I think of as the, the tragedy of climate change. I mentioned before the, 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 the way in which we've got caught between these two poles of denialism and uh, supreme climate optimism about predicting the future. The other tragedy is between the global nature of the changes that are happening in the atmosphere and hence the climate... And yet the intensely local ways in which people and communities and cultures and polities think and reason and act together or not, there's a scalar issue here. And one of the problems with overly emphasizing the economic calculus that contributes to global policy negotiation and discussion is that it can quite easily lose touch with those local grounded communities. One could think about a global optimal solution, and this was actually written into the very first international climate treaty, the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, uh, which first started to put limits on the emissions of greenhouse gases that countries could emit. And it was introduced through the mechanism of the clean development mechanism, the CDM, that actions taken in one part of the world would be seen to be more cost effective than actions taken in another part of the world. So a rich country could benefit from investments made in China if those investments led to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. However, that type of displacement of policy interventions, uh, sometimes called carbon offsetting in other contexts, doesn't do justice to the local lives that are lived in particular places or indeed the types of politics that might emerge from those uh, uh, remote interventions through financial uh, capital flows so so economics can 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 help identify these questions that you've identified Matthew but it also can lead us down what I think are unhelpful directions uh, by framing this as a problem of global economic optimization'
4: you're, you're, you're absolutely right that economics can help but uh, and, and that bad economics, Poorly understood, badly communicated can lead us in the wrong direction. One of the problems is that when economists make predictions about the future, about, for instance, the cost that it will incur in trying to get us away from fossil fuels and towards uh, a low carbon climate resilient infrastructure and energy system, when we make these cost estimates and they say it's going to be trillions of pounds, this immediately gets politicians backs up. They say, oh, well, we don't have trillions. We can't do this. And the fact is, those costs are only high for the first months and years. But as soon as we start investing in developing new technologies, these costs plummet. So what we've seen is that the cost cost of renewables have um, dropped through the floor. They've dropped 80% or 85% in the past decade. If we had pretended that the costs were going to stay high forever, then we would never have gotten started. But we learned by doing.
3: I mean, one of the problems again of the, I mean, we talk about this as an energy transition, uh, as Matthew puts it, of moving away from a fossil based uh, energy and infrastructure. But one of the problems of the transition is the human cost of that transition, uh, the social cost. Uh, and one particular question here is around labor. Um, there is significant part, communities in parts of the world that are very heavily dependent upon fossil fuel extraction. And so one of the questions that emerges at national levels is about if, say, South Africa or India or China is going to move rapidly and quickly away from coal production, what mechanisms are put in place in order to recognize and compensate for that loss of livelihood and security that would follow for millions of workers who are invested in that fossil uh, industry? That, if you like, is a social dimension of the transition, which is linked to, but rather separate from the questions about ec- economics and technological innovation. But it's a, it's a very real political question for politicians who will be seeking re-election from their constituents.
2: And then another side of that that I was going to mention is what we've learned from, from COVID, which is that things can change really quickly if they need to. And, and I think it's been a terrible time, but one of the really positive lessons to come out of that is that we can, we have the potential as, as individuals and as societies, you know, some better led than others, but to make really very dramatic changes to how we, we live, at, you know, on the most intimate scale. We're walking more, we're noticing our local environments more, we're reaching out to our neighbours more, we're appreciating clean air and, you know, lack of air, airplane noise, all of these things. So. Um, I think there's this kind of dimension of the, the capacity for change, as well as what Mike is talking about is sort of large scale um, changes in, you know, the structure of labour and how that will affect um, groups of people. There's this capacity for change on an individual level that we've kind of all experienced together, which I think should be a really
1: powerful tool going forward.
0: So this was an absolutely jam packed part of the conversation. We talked about how climate change is also a problem of human diversity.
1: Uh, Sarah also mentioned how COVID-19 has forced us to react pretty quickly at an individual level, which perhaps bodes well for the future and how we could react to climate change.
0: But climate change is a totally different beast. Oh yes. Mike explained how it is not possible to have one single compelling narrative around climate change that works for everyone because of local contexts and different values.
1: Exactly. And so that also means there's no silver bullet. (laughs) I guess it would be a short (laughs) podcast series uh, if there were. Um, Just a quick note to say that there's a lot more to come on subjects uh, of narrative and stories in a future episode.
0: Okay, back to this episode. We talked about how large scale decision making can get caught up in what's good for global versus what's good for local communities and how this isn't always the same thing.
1: Um, Mike also mentioned the CDM, which is the Clean Development Mechanism. Just reading from the United Nations Climate Change website, it says that this was basically a mechanism to give industrialised countries some flexibility in how they meet their uh, reduction targets, as long as overall the world's emissions stay lower. And in this case, it was by implementing an emission reduction project in developing countries.
0: Which should make sense from a global perspective, but as Mike pointed out, this doesn't take into account the local and individual contexts.
1: Right, and the social dimensions of any kind of environmental action are something that elected politicians actively consider.
0: Thinking about democracy, has it sort of helped or hindered us when it comes to sort of climate change?
3: We're speaking here in a Western liberal democracy, uh, for, for good or ill, and there are certain pressures or expectations uh, and limits and constraints uh, that exist within a democracy. In fact, that is the very purpose of a democracy, is to put checks and balances so that the strong man is not able to uh, uh, decide and to lead uh, on their own. Um, and those checks and balances in a, in a liberal democracy have evolved over 200 or more years, and. Many still value those. What it does, and it comes back to one of my earlier points about how we frame climate change and the sort of stories, value-based stories that are constructed around the sort of problem that climate change is and the types of solutions to climate change that might be sought for is that in a a liberal democracy, one needs to give space for those different stories to be heard.
4: I think that one of the challenges with democracy and climate change is that Climate change is something we think of as being far off into the future and so we face what we call a tragedy of the horizon. We have to do things now where we won't see the full impacts or recoup the gains until long into the future. And democracy is not well suited to dealing with those sorts of issues. But I think this is an issue of the way we communicate climate change and its impacts. We could be focusing as well on the more immediate co-benefits of reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. Things like better air quality in cities, things like less traffic and congestion and less time sitting in your car, waiting in your commute. These are things that you know will come alongside climate investments and that have a more direct and immediate impact on health and the way that we spend our time on a day-to-day basis. And so we should focus on these benefits as well and they're immediate. And I think that can help democracies jump in.
0: So are there any reasons to be optimistic
4: Reasons to be optimistic. Well, um, I'm going to follow an economist by the name of Paul Romer here, who won the Nobel Prize in economics not long ago. Um, And one of the great contributions that he's given us is this idea of conditional versus complacent optimism. Conditional optimism is the kind where you can be excited about what will happen if you get off your seat and, and make some real change in the world. And that's the kind of optimism that I think we could have. We know lots of the things that we need to do. Many of the technical uh, innovations are already in the pipeline and coming online now. The challenge, though, the reason I would be conditional, is that we've known this for some time. We've known what we need to do for five years, 10 years, 15 years. And we haven't managed to find a way to get the political system to move us in the
3: right direction.
1: So Mike... What about you
3: guys? Well, I think if you start off with your objective being to stop global warming at 1.5 degrees, which is an entirely arbitrary number, uh, it's a political negotiation, but it doesn't have any formal meaning in geophysical terms. Um, if, if that's your objective, then I don't think there is much hope. Uh, I, I don't think the speed of change, either technological, economic, social, or cultural, or political, could deliver a future climate that is retained below 1.5 and probably it's a push to think realistically about two degrees however to me that's the wrong way of uh, framing what climate change presents us with it it, it puts us into this uh, mode of thinking and acting in the world that is inspired by deadlineism of uh, uh, formal deadlines rather we should think of climate change as as indeed it has been of generating and catalyzing and new forms of innovation new forms of social organization whether, whether we'll decarbonize and get rid of coal in 20 years or 40 years, to me is less important than finding these points of catalysis for innovation. And and in my mind, therefore, climate change is that source of generative change and innovation. And therefore, I am optimistic.
2: I guess I feel that the extent to which climate change becomes something not defined by science, but defined by the relationship that individuals have to their local environments the extent to which climate change becomes something we all own and feel invested in is the extent to which i feel hope for the future i mean I, I think there is there is cause for hope there we can see that individuals can make a difference and and change can happen rapidly given the right circumstances i think we can we can hope that there are kind of social tipping points and perhaps also economic tipping points that help us on that journey
1: um well after chatting so much about how difficult and complex a problem climate change is to tackle it's good to know that there are still some things to be optimistic about
0: i'll be honest i absolutely loved hearing mike's uh, sort of optimism and looking towards the future that we can you know if we think about climate change as something that is energetic into like human nature then i think it's fantastic so what's happening next
1: Um, In the next episode, we'll be talking with mathematician and climate scientist Emily Shakpra. Hello, I'm Emily Shakpra.
0: Engineer Hugh Hunt.
1: Hi, I'm Hugh Hunt. And psychologist Sander van der Linden. Hello, I am Sander.
0: About what's happening right now to tackle climate change. I'm
1: looking forward to it.
0: Yep. So in the meantime, please like and subscribe to Mind Over Chatter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts from.
1: Make sure to leave us a review. Um, And don't forget to tell all of your friends, family, estranged lovers, pets, colleagues, and all those neighbourhood sticky-fingered toddlers. A huge thanks once again to our guests, Matthew Agawala, Mike Hume, and Sarah Dry. And as ever, to Naomi Clemens-Broad for production and general lurking.
0: Music was by Carlo Ladd and artwork by Alex Sadler.